Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to our Think Humanities podcast. One of the things that we like to do on the podcast is introduce you to new people, new artists, new historians, new scholars, and sometimes uh, we'll slip in a new board member or two. And just sometimes that board member just might be an artist or a musician or a historian. Uh, We have a variety of terrific people who help us on our board of directors at uh, the Kentucky Humanities. And uh, this is one of those occasions when we're going to introduce you to Dr. Keith McCutcheon. Uh, Dr. Keith McCutcheon is the uh, pianist, composer, conductor, uh, and an associate professor of music at Kentucky State University, where he conducts the jazz ensemble, uh, teaches music theory and history and composition and piano, Uh, He's also the director of the Kentucky State uh, University Concert Choir. He's completed uh, national tours with the choir, including concerts in Washington, D.C. and and New York. And he's uh, quite an accomplished um, uh, man about town uh, and uh, a man about uh, the world with so many other accomplishments. And as we go through our uh, conversation with uh, Keith, we're going to find out a lot more about him and also uh, about a recent event that he uh, put together in Frankfurt, which is just extraordinary in its uh, scope. Um, And we'll talk about that too. Keith, welcome to our microphone. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here uh, and to uh, call you a colleague and be on the team of the Humanities officially in Kentucky. Well, that's very nice and, uh, and, and we appreciate that. Um, and uh, let me just begin by asking you a little bit about your, your background. Just fill us in on your, your bio, um, where you were, uh, as they say, raised up. And, sure. and uh, I, there's a wonderful story that I want you to uh, tell, if you will, uh, that I read and repeated uh, at our board of directors meeting not too long ago down at Cumberland Falls State Park about how you got... Um, comfortable with classical music. Yes. Well, Bill, uh, all these things run together and they do, uh, you know, as much as we have divisions and boundaries and different things that define us in different groups, everything seems to run together for me and everything seems to connect and have meaning that uh, connects me to uh, most everything in my life and what I would call my purpose. But, the first thing I want to, my dis, first disclaimer is that I don't currently conduct the concert choir. I came to Kentucky State to conduct the concert choir after Dr. Carl Henry Smith had left. Uh, and I, was, I did so for a couple of years before I was moved to teaching the upper level theory and music history courses and so forth. And so uh, uh, we can get back to K-State, but I did uh, want to say that that, uh, and that was where I uh, began with K-State and, and I continue to evolve with where needed and hopefully to be effective in the most uh, 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 maximum way I can be. Uh, 
But the story with my introduction to classical music, uh, my mother would play uh, NPR on the radio when I was a kid. And so it was always uh, whenever we were in the car. It was always on 88.9 or whatever at the time. And, and we I grew up in South Union, Kentucky, between Bowling Green and Franklin. So it was Western Station that I would hear. And uh, the, uh, the, the dichotomy of Sunday mornings was um, preparing to go to my church, uh, go country church uh, just about a mile from South Union, Shaker Village in South Union, and um, where the music would be totally of this oral tradition that we talk about in terms of the African-American tradition. And, uh, no one's reading any music, and, and often the music was led by the deacons who would stand in the front. And of course, as young people, uh, you learn the music by hearing it. And there was a lady named Miss Annie Mae Huffman, who, would, who was kind of the uh, uh, matriarch of the church. And, and she would always begin to sing things that it seemed like no one knew it. But we would pick it up, and and of course I remember many of those melodies, and they they they're very vivid for me now, and it it is very interesting uh, just how that that oral tradition is very much a part of my musical self, and and I refuse to to think of it as less than anything, as as well as I I, I, I value it and and protect it, but uh, the flip the other side of that is. Uh, listening, as my as we say, uh, leaving to go to church with my mother, and we're listening to St. Martin's in the Field, or uh, you know, Philadelphia Orchestra, who whomever, and uh, learning to love that music, uh, finding it so soothing, and and being so comfortable between languages, if you will. Uh, uh, we, we, you know, there's terms that now like code switching and things. For me, it's just, uh, just w different languages, <laughs> you know, that one speaks depending on where you are and who you're speaking to or speaking with, you know. Uh, so yeah, it, it's, uh, that's... Uh, Did that the, lead you to learn uh, an instrument when you were young? Well, my mother played piano at our church, and then I began to play after her. So I was always playing the piano. Uh, and I began very early with... Did you play by ear? Both, always, okay. both, always. Uh, and um, continued to do so. It was interesting because uh, both... Uh, uh, I had very good teachers. Uh, Miss Holcomb was my first teacher, and then a teacher named Betty Jo Welch. Uh, and then later, my senior in high school, I studied with Dr. David Livingston, who was all things at Western New Kentucky mm -hmm. University and a, a wonderful jazz musician as well as composer. And so, uh, you know, he, he very much was a, a, a way of preparing me. But what I'd say both, well, all three situations formally prepared me uh, in many ways for what would come in, in terms of the classical training and the formal training. But again, no, I, the other part of what was amazing about the oral tradition was when they would have the church conferences in Bowling Green, there was these musicians, Robert Phillips and uh, John Edmonds. And uh, 
they would both be playing and, and someone could start singing or the, a guest minister would get up and they would start singing and the musician, these two would come in just immediately in the right key, you know. Uh, if you weren't good at this, you, you're picking around at the piano trying to find it till you get it. But, and, I, and I just re always remembered, I want to be able to do that. And we talk about that now as having perfect pitch, right? Mm. And, and, and many would argue you either have it or you don't, but I, I believe that I developed it and certainly strong relative pitch by just the conditioning, you know, and uh, what we call oral skills or ear training now, but in the formal setting, but uh, yeah. So. Did you ever, uh, as a little boy, uh, stray from um, piano lessons and, and want to play ball or join the other um, well, I, I did. In, I, in I did play. Well, or did you do both? I did. I did all three. Well, I did. Uh, I played uh, basketball. I ran track, and I played football. Uh, a little football injury in the eighth grade. Uh, my mother took me out of football, but basketball continued. And and I used to run eleven miles from home into the into town. Wow. And so, so uh, the so the, two mile, the two mile the the mile yeah. two mile. And the mile relay and the 800 were my races. But, yeah. But, uh, so no, but it was, but the, when you said stray, there was stray in so many ways. Okay, with the one teacher, you're straying if you, if you don't play what's on the page. <laughs> uh, with, you know, my mother playing at, uh, playing in church when I began to play and she said, if I played something that sounded too boogie woogie, then I was straying <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to go tap, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, so there were several ways to stray, I guess. In yeah. that. <laughs> well, you know, I don't think I've ever uh, talked about this uh, in public. I don't think I've ever talked about this uh, on a microphone before, but, um, we all have a few little regrets that we uh, remember. Um, and one of those is that um, as, a, as a young boy, I thought that I was going to be a, a much better uh, athlete than mm. I was a, uh, a, a pianist or a violin player. I had um, terrific um, music talent, musical talent in my family. My, uh, my mother played uh, the cello and the piano. My, my aunt taught me violin. My grandmother uh, was my piano teacher and played the organ at the First Christian Church in Glasgow, Kentucky for, uh, oh uh, gosh, I've heard you know, 60 years or something like that. Uh, so you had a foundation there. Oh my goodness. But I got up from the keyboard uh, early and, and did not do my practice uh, begrudgingly went to the recitals uh, like uh, I was supposed to uh, and then walked away from it and and I have honestly regretted it ever since and there you I admire you so much for you combined athletics and uh, and musical talent uh, in a way that uh, look at you now well you know but it's funny Bill think about it we talk about arts and humanities uh, you started uh, wanting to do sports, and here you are over Kentucky Humanities. So I think I think the arts transcended Comes you to around. the humanities. Well, I can it. always go back and uh, and pick up the piano or maybe you the can. violin. And yeah, you, yes. Well, when um, so you you had some talent. Um, was that recognized by others uh, that that said to you? 
uh, Keith, you can do something with this career, with, well, you with know, this talent? Well, there was, there was practical application, being that there were lots of different churches and not very few, many musicians. And, you know, and, and certainly within the African-American community, uh, you know, students or pe young people studying instruments. And so I, I pretty much often had free range of who was needing someone to play. So I was practically functionally playing for different churches from like ninth, ninth grade through graduation and certainly I continued uh, 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 having a church position if you will has always been a part of uh, uh, my compositional makeup and mm -hmm. even my musical self and and uh, or my composite mm -hmm. self if you would and uh, so yeah it, it it did that made a way and 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 then performing in different uh, venues um, Jazz-wise, I think 1982 coming to UK uh, was it was uh, very interesting. I was a kid in a candy store at UK and coming here because uh, right away so many different musical opportunity, artistic opportunities opened up. I before you know it, I was I was playing it. I had a church position. I was playing gigs with Vince DiMartino. Uh, you know, as soon as I got here, before you know it, it was Vince like, okay, we're playing here, we're going there, we're playing here. Um, I began to play ballet classes for the Lexington Ballet. Um, met up with this gentleman, Duke Madison, who, uh, who was just like the, um, the Duke of jazz, if you will, of Lexington, and, and was able to play with Duke for a number of years. and and became known as the, the kid who Duke yelled at and uh, played with. But, uh, and Duke will remind me that he said, don't think you're special because you get to play with me now. I just don't, can't find anyone else around here right now. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you feel real good, didn't it? Well, you know, and, uh, and, for, and for anyone to, uh, that remembers my time with Duke, there is a, uh, we did a documentary, or Pat McNeese Pat did a documentary of Duke that's on KET. And it's out on YouTube that uh, has him and uh, with a young, eighteen to twenty year old oh. Keith on it. You know? Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Well, so when uh, we talked about uh, classical, we talked about some gospel music. Uh, you were playing in in churches, mm -hmm. probably traditional uh, church music too. Indeed, yeah. Um, so when did the jazz uh, happen? Well, that's what I was saying with Vince DiMartino when I got there just and, the, and Duke Madison just says I came to UK. Had you not had any um, a fondness for that before? Did, I did just, you listen? No, I began to, I, I, was, I, be, I, be, I was exposed to Miles Davis around 16 ah. and was totally yeah uh, mesmerized by what I heard of Miles' music. Uh, and but application again the the opportunity to play you know I, I went to uk on a scholarship and i played in the jazz band there and i just kind of stayed in the jazz band forever I, it took me a long time to finish my undergrad because i was doing all these other things i was yeah. telling you about and uh, got to tour with some people and do some things and then of course uh coming back and forgot married after getting married uh life got serious and it was I finished my certification in a, a, for K through 12 teaching and taught uh, arts and humanities at uh, um, 
Taste Creek Middle School. And I did some choir directing at uh, Bryan Station High School. And uh, um, I taught at Scapa um, and had an affiliation there at both the, uh, when it, uh, on Georgetown Street as well as Lafayette mm -hmm. High School. And, uh, but all the time I'm doing this, I'm playing jazz. I'm playing with Duke all the time. I'm still doing all those other things. And um, then um, I had an opportunity to, to do a sabbatical replacement for Kathy Bullock at Berea College. And Richard Davis, the jazz uh, bassist Richard Davis, uh, had done it, a year-long residency. I was able to write a piece for him that he had brought a bunch of New York musicians, Kenny Barron, um, Carl Allen, who I'm still remain in contact with, uh, um, the late Stanley Turrentine, um, and all these wonderful musicians. And so we, I was able to uh, help uh, write, write a piece for a gospel, for community choir. And jazz meets gospel, if you will. So we do this concert. And then Richard was able to come down to Berea, and we kind of recreated it there at Berea College as well. What was that? Now, that wasn't the, uh, because I do want to talk about everyone is so familiar with Amazing Grace. That that came later, though. That's later. later. Much That's later. later. Okay. That's much well, later. But, yeah, that, that, um, that is later. We're almost there, though, because yeah. when I went after Berea College, I moved to Minnesota. And I got it, and I was I was at a I was at a church called Park Avenue, that was probably about three blocks from where the whole George Floyd and all that. I I was mm. I lived in that whole neighborhood, and that beautiful neighborhood, a very diverse neighborhood, uh, and um, so I finished my master's at the University of Minnesota, and I get a call about teaching at Saint Olaf College. Of all places, you know, I, I, you know, me being there, let alone doing uh, jazz, gospel, and teaching music theory. Music theory I can see, but the jazz and the gospel. <laughs> but, uh, but while there, I was privileged to. I became really good friends with Anton Armstrong, the world-renowned choir conductor that's been there forever, and they have an amazing choir, by the way, world-renowned and. Uh, he asked me to go on the tour with them when they went down south, and he said, Keith, write me an arrangement of Amazing Grace. Oh, goodness. And so that arrangement of Amazing Grace has been recorded all over. If you Google it, you'll continue to just find people who have recorded it, different uh, professional choir organizations, high school, church choirs, and then it's, it's now in hymn books throughout Asia. Mm. Uh, uh, they did a tour in South Korea, and it was very popular there. So what does it, uh, Keith, um, take me to music school uh, for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. What does it really mean when you, um, when you score uh, or arrange, or, or or arrange uh, a standard that was written many, many years ago? Well, you, you put your own stamp on it? What, what do yes, you, do? you put your own stamp on it. In this case, what was so unique about it was it wasn't my stamp. I was a historian in a way. It was me reflecting on the various, it, what would you call it, the, the various um, musical interpretations of a, Amazing Grace that I've heard in the African-American tradition throughout the years. 
over from a child coming up. And so there's certain ways of inflecting and doing certain things with the, uh, with the melody that uh, I would say I just took those and put those in place as a part of arrangement that was for uh, four parts and the piano uh, part as well, where I'm playing various nuances that you would hear uh, that are a part of the tradition, right? So in essence, it, it, it does have kind of a historical bearing in that it's, mm. it, that it, people are gonna hear, oh, I know that reference, I know that reference. Oh, I've heard it sung like that, I've, I've done that that run there, mm -hmm. if you will. But then also, I encapsulated the harmony of what would be traditional gospel as well, right? So, so there's the melody itself, but then it, the way it's harmonized, the piano accompaniment, and the combination of those things uh, as interpreted mm -hmm. through my visual lens, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. I mean, a more oral lens, yeah. I, I guess, if you will. Yeah. Um, I did see a reference to, um, and only uh, a few of us uh, would know, uh, the name Mel Torme, mm -hmm. the, the Velvet Fog. Was that his, uh, you, you, you played with him? This is back to Vince DiMartino when I first came here to UK. Vince used to bring everybody here. I uh, I knew Doc Severinsen so well. He would see me and say hi, Keith. You know, and that <laughs> really? was that was that was because these were Vince DiMartino's friends. And that's, no that, kidding. Uh, at, he was a great teacher, and that's part of the contribution of what you have having someone like Vince. What he would bring yeah. to a place, you know, and this is yeah. UK, but. Uh, Mel Terme came and performed, uh, I think may have performed twice. It was either twice with him or with Diane Schur. Once when he came with the, the UK band and then perhaps another time. But the everyone that went to school uh, at the time when was at the UK band remembers the story about with Mel Terme with me. Uh, we were doing, we were rehearsing and uh, I wasn't doing something right, and uh, he had to stop a couple of times. He said, uh, "What's your name, baby?" I said, "Keith, Keith, baby, Dick, baby." He said, "That ain't it, baby." <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so you know, <laughs> and then Mel so Torme. yeah, and, and so then that evening when we did the concert, he said, "That's it, baby. That's it." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, again, uh, I'm sure a lot of people. Uh, hopefully, some. Some younger people too, but a lot of people who listen to this uh, podcast are of a, a, a certain a, a generation, and they remember uh, Mel Torme and uh, uh, that era of uh, gosh, we could talk about Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. and uh, well, you know, it's interesting so because many, Mel many names. yes, Mel Torme, you know, you can mention them with those gentlemen, those fabulous entertainers. But, you know, Mel entertained on that level, but he was on the jazz level, on the level of an Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah. Or, or you know, or, or uh, uh, you know, who else you want to name? Ellington sure. to Coltrane. Yeah. Right? He, he was in the jazz arena yeah. as well. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I would give a shout out, speaking of that again, to the my early years here in Lexington and, and UK, 
Chester Grundy was in his mm -hmm. prime with the uh, Spotlight Jazz series. So mm -hmm. again, when I got here, I'm going to concerts on campus and I'm meeting Louis Nash, who is still a lifelong friend, who was on the time touring with Betty Carter, uh, mm -hmm. a world-renowned jazz yeah. artist. Uh, I remember, um, I think it was maybe my second semester here, I went to see Ella Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. I'm a freshman. I'm going, uh, you know, yeah. uh, to see, uh, you know, that's that's kind of, uh, again, so I'm very thankful to Chester that uh, uh, between he and Vince, the amount of world-class jazz yeah. uh, education as well as just performance that we were exposed to. Yeah. Is, uh, really well, something. I want to talk a little bit more about music and then uh, talk a little bit more about uh, what you're doing now, what you want to do. And, sure, yeah, uh, but yeah. We'll, uh, we'll take a pause here and hear from our great friends uh, that support uh, our podcast uh, who operate the uh, senior Jita Naslin, Karen Mann, a graduate School of Writing at Spalding University. Let's hear from them. Spalding University's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing prepares students to publish, produce, and find professional success. Alumni publish books with top presses, write for television and film, and have plays produced around the country. They work as editors, professors, media professionals, content developers, and more. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. I'm talking with uh, Keith McCutcheon, who is uh, the um, esteemed uh, professor of uh, music at Kentucky State University and uh, we're um, walking down memory lane for the first half of uh, the, the, the podcast and talking about uh, his growth in music and, and the people that he played with. And, you know, Keith, I do wonder sometimes, and of course, again, um, this, um, this is of a, a concern to a degree, but I, I sometimes uh, I, miss, I miss the music. I, I, it, it is, um, I miss the ballads. Mm -hmm. uh, I miss the... Uh, the lyrics that uh, were so clear and understandable, uh, the the melodies that were so well written, uh, the um, and jazz too. Um, I remember so well, like yesterday, listening for the first time to Dave Brubeck, Take Five, and thinking, "Goodness gracious, that that that's just it's remarkable, incredible." And is that music? Is it surviving and will it continue to be played and learned by another generation? My thesis for humanity and for jazz suggests by observation that there is always an acceptance period and a rejection period to most things. You know, and the rejection happens when there's a need for innovation for whatever reason. Whether we think it's innovation or not, there's a need for the change. Uh, and uh, the, either people need to express themselves differently because the context has changed, or they're just tired of trying to express themselves in a particular mode that has existed, you know, often. And um, 
that's one component of what I see that happens over and over. You know, often we'll look at that as happening uh, within 10 year periods, you know, that where you can see how styles change and, and, and genres evolve and back and forth. But um, the other thing is to accept the fact that change is inevitable. And one of the people that we look to in jazz history that has done that the most and did that most with mo the most within one lifetime would have been Miles Davis, who started early pre-bebop, then went through the most revolutionary period of rejection of what anything that looked like Louis Armstrong slash anything that, that would associate itself to minstrelsy at all of the early 20th century looking for, searching for an identity of music that spoke artistically and intellectually for who uh, uh, men were seeing themselves to be and seeking to be as human, as part of humanity, if you will. Yeah. And then having gone through the bebop period, then found this gentleman, Gil Evans, and uh, became a part of a, a very sophisticated, what we call West Coast style. And then Miles moved into, uh, if Jimi Hendrix hadn't died, he and Hendrix would have been collaborating. Mm, really? Because he took on just looking at what was happening with both uh, the amount of people that could be influenced or you would have at an audience in an arena versus a small nightclub, mm. right? But also just, uh, so Miles, Miles went through at least three, four, five different stages of change, in his, you know, mm -hmm. and, and also was the innovator within those changes. Mm -hmm. uh, not everyone's going to get the opportunity to do that. But with an open mind, one continues to be uh, and what I find, and this is what many of uh, the elder statesmen would do, either you rejected things or you continue to play with younger and younger musicians mm -hmm. because that those younger musicians are going to bring that new energy. Mm -hmm. That's either going to create something new for you mm -hmm. or you are going to be able to innovate within them and they become your instrument <laughs> to create something new. Yeah, and And so... I, I did I, I said all that without answering your quest, question directly because it's never either or for me. Yeah. Um I'm I'm not like Miles in the sense that Miles never wanted to look back. He didn't keep memorabilia or his albums from the past. It was always what he was mm. doing right then. I am like you. I love it when I can be in a place and I'll play, uh, and there's, you know, if I'm playing a country club, I'm playing some play or concert hall, there's a certain etiquette expectation of what the music's going to be that you came there for. When I'm playing a certain, like, more, like, uh, urban slash uh, open settings where there's all different types of people, it's a, it's really nice to be able to do something that's very relevant to those people that can relate to what I'm doing and say, mm -hmm. hey, that's like right now. Mm -hmm. And then be able to take them back and do a ballad, do body and soul, and sing it very slow and soft like I did at yeah. the thing. Uh -huh. 
but you know I can't keep a group I, depending on who the crowd sure. is I can't keep them there all night but I can take them there yeah and then and and the ability then to take them and speak different languages uh, you know again that's that's part of what we do within the jazz uh, medium and yeah. I talk about being able to go around the world and 60 seconds got to go 80 or 80 seconds got to go you know yeah, and, and, yeah. Um, tell us uh, what you accomplished in uh, Frankfurt uh, just a few weeks ago in Frankfurt a few weeks ago I have co accomplished what I would say is a trajectory of uh, three years of work um, working in conjunction first with uh, colleagues from the university there uh, doing things on campus and then for the past two years I've had uh, MOU with the city of Frankfurt where we've we've collaborated creating what is now known as the Frankfurt International Jazz Day celebration that happens the weekend of International Jazz Day as we which is April 30th uh, as established by UNESCO and, and Herbie Hancock Institute. But then we also uh, had uh, two weekends that were part of the, what April is considered Jazz Appreciation Month. And so we uh, collaborated, uh, and I say we, uh, there's a nonprofit that uh, I'm president of who started called uh, KJAM Collective, Kentucky Jazz Appreciation Month Collective. Um, Along with the city, we collaborated with uh, Paul Sawyer Public Library, and the, the library put on their first inaugural jazz festival, and it was really amazing. I was so proud of the work they did. I'm, I'm grateful to the friends of the library who sponsored, and then also the library itself, who sponsored uh, uh, former uh, poet laureate uh, Frank X. Walker, mm -hmm. and we collaborated together on something called uh, Jazz Meets Poetry, uh, Frank had done some research on uh, Frankfurt uh, all the way to uh, Camp Nelson, just uh, looking all the way back to the Civil War forward, looking at some trajectories, and wrote a new set of what he's calling sonnets uh, that uh, we uh, uh, got to hear and explore a little bit with music and then some other pieces. But... Uh, um, we also were able to collaborate with the uh, Kentucky Historical Society as well as the Capital City Museum. And we had a museum block, or uh, museum uh, hop block party. Uh, the block party part got rained out, unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, we did have a very nice uh, concert inside of uh, Commonwealth Hall in the Kentucky, Kentucky Historical mm -hmm. Society. Uh, jazz violins, and it was, it was very nice. Uh, and then um, this past weekend at uh, the Grand Theater, we had uh, NEA Jazz Ambassador Jamie Abersole and uh, uh, two of his musicians that came down to be a part of uh, honoring what we call our Frankfurt Living Legends and a number of fine musicians that are from Frankfurt that are have either that are still performing mm -hmm. and also educators as well as uh, just lifelong uh, committed mm -hmm. to this music and uh, have uh, performed on numerous some that have speaking of uh, people yeah. one that has performed with Frank Sinatra another that mm -hmm. had, had performed with um, 
um, Stan Kenton's band yeah. going back, uh-huh. uh, and uh, so yeah, just uh, uh, just wonderful. Musicians. Were you pleased with the uh, the outcome? I was very pleased. Uh, we uh, we had a we had a number of young people that participated. One of the high school bands performed outside before the event inside and yes and then they came in and and were part of the audience um i i feel like that the restaurants and the surrounding uh businesses were impacted by the Good. the weekend so yeah, yeah so I, I feel like we made an, an economic impact on the community i feel like well uh, we were able to get probably some of the most diverse audiences at some of the events that we had mm-hmm. uh, that maybe Frankfurt has, you yeah. know. And, uh, and you hope to do it again? We look to do it again. This is the second of what I hope will be a, con- a continuation, a yearly event. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. So, Keith, uh, uh, with your teaching and, and uh, all of the other work that you do and your uh, mentoring and, and then playing and still writing and composing and... Uh, what what are your aspirations? What are your goals? What what would you like to do other than everything that you already are doing? Well, I'd, I'd like to just continue those things to try to uh, uh, narrow them into uh, what will become hopefully my legacy moments, uh, uh, and that that does combine documenting things, archiving things, uh, uh, whether that be uh, helping to make Kentucky State the repository for um, uh, artistic and cultural artifacts from throughout the African diaspora as well as Kentucky, um, and uh, continuing to help um, our state um, just acknowledge all components of who we are in terms of our Kentucky identity yeah. and where um, uh, folks from South Union, Kentucky, through this area, uh, fit into the whole um, fabric of, of that history and legacy. Well, you're um, a fine person, and it's been such an honor to get to know you. I can't believe we've both existed uh, in in this Commonwealth yes. for so long, and but that's uh, that's the miracle of uh, that that still occurs that we can still meet each other and get to know each other and and um, and, and like and work each other uh, with each other and uh, so all that's good uh, and and we're so uh, glad that you're going to be able to assist us with whatever. Uh, uh, on the Kentucky Humanities Board of Directors for uh, a few years. Honored to be a part, and we'll do my best to help us uh, bridge the gaps and connect uh, people and our cultures as we uh, look at our Kentucky identity. Keith McCutcheon, thanks for being here. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.